God, we thank you that you have given us your words, that we're not left alone wondering what our God says to us, but that we have been given the very words of our God to go to, to learn from, to be changed by, and to see you in. We pray that's what would happen today, that you would show us yourself and your goodness, and that you would show us who we are in light of who you are and what you have done, and that you would lead us to walk in the light of Jesus. Come, Lord, here and be at work in this church. Amen. Well, uh, a name you're probably all at least vaguely familiar with is Julius Caesar. Yeah? Right? Come on. Anyone who's even read an Asterix book, right? Um, one, of the, one of the earliest historical documents that we have is called Caesar's Gaelic Wars. It's, it's Caesar himself giving an account of his wars in Gaul. Um, it's very asterisks and obliques, actually, though a little bit more on the violent side of things. Um, uh, it, 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 it gives the account of his conquest of Gaul. Gaul is what today, roughly, we call France, um, uh, but it wasn't, wasn't one big united thing at the time. Uh, but the, the text comes to its kind of climax in, in the Battle of Alessia. Alessia, I'm not sure. Uh, in the Battle of Alicia, you see Julius Caesar surrounding a city. Uh, the city is Alicia, as you might have guessed, and the city is important because the city is where the leader who has unified a number of a large number of the tribes of Gaul has gone and hid with his armies. His name, which I'm going to get wrong, is Vercingetorix. Vercingetorix, I don't know. Vercingetorix, Vercingetorix. That sounds like asterisk, doesn't it? We'll go with that. Uh, but Caesar comes. And he holds the city to siege. Uh, and and it's, it, it, look, historically, I, I get fascinated by this stuff. You don't have to remember this bit. But, but it's fascinating when you look at the Roman fortifications that they did, right? We don't have the fortifications, but people have rebuilt them from historical accounts. And if you've read an Asterix and Obelix book, they look exactly like the ones in Asterix and Obelix. They are these big wooden walls with big wooden towers. And they built one the whole way around this city. 16 kilometres long, 23 towers. Wow! Uh, if you built a wooden wall from here to Karamolka, you would still be more than two kilometres short. Um, uh, but but what, what makes the siege of Alicia really interesting for us today is that they built two. Uh, so the Gauls managed to get a message out asking for reinforcements, and Caesar builds a wall on the inside to stop them from coming out, an inner circle, so to speak, and a wall on the outside to stop the outer world breaking in. And he fights a war on two fronts. And what's very impressive is he won. But, uh, but that's by the by for us. Now, I'm, I hope it's not too confusing that I'm going to use Romans as a metaphor for the church in a series about the church in, against Rome. <laughs> but... I, I do. I, I see a lot of what we see here in our passage today in the letter to the church in Pergamum when we look at that battle plan. And indeed, I see a lot of what is faced by the church everywhere. And we'll get to that. 
But let me just remind you, today we're in our fifth part, I believe, in our series, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And we're in the third of the seven churches that Jesus writes to and gives a specific message to in those first, uh, the second and third chapters. Indeed, the whole book is written to these churches. He says it at the start and he seals it at the end. But what is important, what I just want to jog your memory on, is that these are not just casual words of reminder nor good life advice that Jesus gives to his churches. Jesus intentionally structures these messages so that they are to be recognised as oracles of God. They are, thus says the Lord, statements. But in this case, they are, thus says, well, for Pergamum, he who has the sharp two-edged sword. They are also imperial edicts shaped after the edicts of the emperors of Rome, where Jesus is saying, I am your emperor. So our God and our king is speaking to us authoritatively in these messages, and we must listen. Now, Pergamum, Pergamum was an interesting city. Pergamum was a Roman stronghold. It was actually the Roman capital of the, of the whole region of, of Asia. You know, we've looked at um, Ephesus and Smyr- uh, Smyrna, and, and they were the kind of the two ones that vied for first city, and and. Uh, Pergamum was the capital, the administrative, the, 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 the military capital of the area. It's kind of the Canberra if we've just looked at Sydney and uh, um, Melbourne. I've forgotten the name of a city just now. But uh, it, it's a city that was full of ideas. Uh, they, were, they were the cutting edge of knowledge in the Roman Empire. Uh, Pergamum, fun fact, was the second largest li- had the second largest library in ancient Rome. After, after the one that if you've heard of an ancient library, you've heard of the Library of Alexandria. Uh, uh, some lists, for instance, the one on history.com, lists the library at Pergamum as the third most significant ancient library ever. That's big. 200,000 scrolls in this library in a day not just before the printing press, but before paper as we know it. It was also a city of religious power. Possibly, um, possibly this is actually why Jesus says to the church that they live where Satan has his throne. Uh, Pergamum uh, was home to a massive temple of Zeus, which overshadowed the city from the alleged sticking out from the mountain over the city. It was also home to the first ever temple dedicated to a Roman emperor. And if you've been with us so far, you'll know that one of the great causes of persecution that were facing the church was the Roman imperial cult, which called people to worship. By by the time that this was written, under Emperor Domitian, which demanded that people worship the emperor or be excluded from society, be excluded from work, and even in the case of someone like John, be sent to a slave island for not doing it. Well, today we're looking at the letter to this church, like we've said, and this church was a church fighting a war on two fronts. In fact, I want to argue that every church is called to fight a war on two fronts. There's an outer front. Now, we don't know this front very well here. This is the persecution front. Uh, Not... This is the front where fighting looks like not just giving in and abandoning Christ, but standing up to it. Pergamum was doing really well on the outer front. Jesus says to them, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. 
Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. This is a place of active persecution. Incidentally, this is why you can't look at the letter to Smyrna and go, yeah, he's just being nice and not giving anything negative because they were being persecuted and stuff. Because he gives negative stuff to Pergamum and, like, they're dying. But Jesus says, you're doing great on the outer front. You are remaining faithful to me, even, even in the days when one of you was killed for being faithful in his witness to me. But there's also a war on the inner front which they desperately need to be aware of and which we need to be aware of. This isn't the war against persecution. This is the war against false teaching and false beliefs from within the church and as a result against worldly living within the church. Here's a thing uh, which, which you know instinctively even if, if, if you don't know it in your head. You always do what you believe. Beliefs always work out in practice. You all demonstrated this when you sat down this morning because you believed the chair would hold your weight or you wouldn't have sat in it. If you say you believe one thing and you do something else, then that reveals that at least to some extent you are believing something else than what you said. Do you see what I mean? And the, the church in Pergamum is, fighting, is facing this battle of false beliefs that are leading to false actions. This is the battle for the mind. And this battle, the battle of what we teach and what we believe, was where Pergamum was really falling short. They were losing ground on the inner front in a serious way. And, and it's sad to say that as far as I can see, the battle for the mind, the battle on the inner front, is the one that the church in Australia has been losing for a really long time, by and large. Let me ask you a question. How many churches in Australia that you know of have fallen to persecution in the last, let's say, since Captain Cook landed? Like, like zero, right? Like that I know of anyway. Maybe, uh, I'm not saying it couldn't have happened. How many churches, how many have been lost to compromise in what we believe? How many in the last five years? You can't keep count of that. How many have fallen from right belief into minimized beliefs into wrong beliefs? and along the way into wrong living. Even, even just recently, right? Countless. Now, we might ask ourselves, you know, like I say, how many fall into persecution? There is no persecution, right? Uh, and, and, and we might ask, why? Why is there no persecution? Um, you know, that could change, as we alluded to last week, but at the moment, at least, there's no systemic persecution. And it's a worthy question. Why is it that that's not there? And you can answer that two ways, right? There are two popular answers to that question. One is, well, we're a good Christian nation, right? Um, we've had Christian values, we've, and so we've favoured the church, and God has blessed our nation and looked after our churches. But really? Like, have we really seen broad faithfulness in the churches in Australia ever? I'm not saying there haven't been faithful churches 
you know, the revelation, the, the testimony of the revelation is that faithful churches tend to be persecuted churches. And, and the other way of answering it, of course, is that the Australian church has been losing the war on the inner front for so long and so thoroughly that the outer circle, the persecution, has not been a necessary weapon against us. Satan hasn't been reinforcing with persecution here because the weapon of compromise has been working really well, thank you. Remember, we lose the inner, the inner circle war when the church is willing to accept beliefs and teachings that are untrue and then those beliefs and teachings lead to false living. Jesus says to the church in Pergamum, I have a few things against you. This is verse 14 and 15. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Now notice, core issue here, teaching. Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, let me, let me clarify something here. That this isn't, I don't think, the, the clearest way of reading this is that this isn't two separate teachings that were coming up in this church. This is one teaching that he's explaining. Balaam, Balaam is this Old, old Testament character who comes up in the book of Numbers. Uh, that he's using as a reference to explain what the Nicolaitans are doing. You might remember, the, the book of Revelation has more than one allusion or reference to the Old Testament perverse. Uh, the two names, one of the reasons I believe this is that the two names, Balaam and, and, and Nicolaus, which, which is the, the name for, that you get Nicolaitans from, uh, they mean almost exactly the same thing. Uh, they mean one who overcomes or one who rules the people, one who overcomes the people, one who rules the people. Balaam was this figure who comes up in the book of Numbers, like we said, where he is hired by a Moabite king as the people of Israel are crossing the wilderness and entering the land. He's hired by a Moabite king, Balak, to curse the people of Israel. It's a fun story if you go and read it, by the way, because uh, Balak wants them destroyed, and every time he goes to curse the people of Israel, God thwarts it and makes Balaam bless them. It doesn't work. The outright attack on them of just, hey, let's just curse them, doesn't do anything for Balak. So instead, Balaam advises Balak to tempt the Israelites into compromise. And that's what these Nicolaitans were teaching. They were teaching from within the church that you could worship Jesus and be a disciple, but you could go to the feasts at the temples of the other gods. It's okay. You can compromise there. These feasts, they were held in the temples, and it was considered that the God was present themselves at the feast. Significantly, this sort of worship was often required to be a part of, of something like a trade guild. And so to get work in your trade this is a big deal, right? This wasn't some kind of back corner of the city that, oh, you could or couldn't do that and it didn't really make any difference to your life. This was, this was in many, like, this was poverty or wealth. So, so the teaching would go, hey, your livelihood depends on the worship feasts and God doesn't want you to starve, right? And you know, idols don't mean anything, right? They're, they're just wood. They're just stone. You don't need to worry about it. No, if you have to, feel free to go to the worship feast. Jesus doesn't mind. 
And hey, you can practice the sexual immorality of this culture. That, you know, it's hard for us to get our heads around. It's increasingly less hard for us to get our heads around. But Rome was a messed up little place. Big place, actually. You know, um, the norm of sexuality. Like one, one, ancient author, uh, one, one modern author, rather, has said that, that monogamy was one of the truly unique things that Christianity brought to the world. It, it, it's amazing when you look at it. Like one Roman author, he wrote that we have, he, he said, this isn't my words, this is his words, we have mistresses who we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our households. You know, so we, we, got, we got the whole range. There was a range of extra things on there as well that are very unpleasant to mention in church um, or anywhere. But these teachers would teach that it's okay to do this. And this is probably connected even with the issue of idolatry. It's not really two issues. It's one issue that he's addressing. Uh, Greg Beale points out that the word Jesus uses here has, has both a spiritual and a physical meaning. And, and often the two were directly intertwined in, in the, an act called temple prostitution, which was very common. You know, it's not, not actually terribly different to how, say, the New Age movement intertwines uh, spirituality and sex today. But these teachers would say, it's okay. Jesus doesn't want the world to see you as weird, right? Or maybe he doesn't want you to give him a bad name in the community as a rebel against the way that society is. This, this might have been mixed with the teaching which Paul fought against in Corinth and in Rome, right? Your body's just a body. It doesn't, it doesn't affect your spirit, what you do with your body. Very Greek idea, not a very Christian idea. Church, here's an important truth. What the church is willing to believe what Christians, what you are willing to believe, what teaching we are willing to accept matters a lot. And did you see the connection there? The teaching always leads to the life. Believing the teaching of the Nicolaitans inevitably led to living in submission to idols and to immorality. Church, like I've said, this is such a major issue in the church in Australia today. Let me tell you a pattern that I believe you could find repeated in almost countless churches across, uh, across the years in Australia, and even today. A church starts out, and perhaps they embrace and they know the truth that they believe as they start out. Every church started somewhere, right? This country, they didn't show up in churches everywhere, no. Uh, at least they have a few core people who know what they believe, who are going to hold that and who are going to, you know, keep that. But, but over time, their theology becomes what you might call lean. They gradually trim off edges until eventually their statement might be no creed but the Bible. But in reality, they have little, little to no idea of exactly what the Bible says and they use that as a way not to express the truth that comes from the Bible. And the void doesn't remain empty for long. Because where truth has left, lies joyfully come and fill the gap. Let me give you a few examples. 
lest you should think that John's just making a fuss about nothing, right? No, he's just fear-mongering. I have, a, I have a dear close friend who is a Baptist pastor who helped his church uh, that he used to be at. He, uh, he was an associate pastor there. He helped them to put together uh, their search for a new pastor, uh, for a new senior pastor. And, and his role in that was to assemble a list of a few theological distinctives that they were looking for in a new pastor. Uh, he was approached by the state head of his denomination and told, hey, you should get rid of that list because you'd get way more applicants if you didn't have any theological requirements. To which he responded, that's why we have the list. But the state head of his denomination... I have another dear close friend in a separate state, in a separate denomination in Australia, major denomination in this country, who was told by the head of his denomination that Jesus was a sinner. Just outright. Just right there in black and white. Finally, at random, in what was probably a poorly advised move, I recently listened to a random sermon from a large denominational, denomination-leading church in Adelaide. It was from a different denomination than those other two I just mentioned, by the way. It was a sermon from Trinity Sunday, if you follow the liturgical calendar. Uh, it's the day when churches have traditionally celebrated the incredible truth of the doctrine of the Trinity. And they, they brought this up on the day so as to say that that, that that was a lovely framework in the time when it was put together. But we can use other frames now. We can think of God in other ways because, because Trinity is probably dated and doesn't really make sense. You, you can think of him as the mother hen or we can do it the way the Jewish people do it. That was specifically in there. It, it, it doesn't really matter that much. It was just a framework to look at God through. Let me, I want to give you three reasons why the teaching and the beliefs of the church? By that, I do not mean the leaders of the church, although that matters, but the members of the church, the, the people of the church, the congregation. Why what we believe and teach matters. Reason number one, lies enslave. This is probably the primary reason Jesus cares. Jesus cares about what we believe intensely because lies are what bring us into bondage to sin. In the Garden of Eden, what was it but a lie which led the whole creation under a curse? I love how Daryl Johnson puts this. He says, Jesus is passionately intolerant <laughs> because he is passionately intolerant of people being enslaved. When we believe about God, about ourselves, and about this world, that which is not true, then we become enslaved to those lies. They don't enrich us, they destroy us. They damage us. The Nicolaitans were teaching that Christians could celebrate the feasts of the idols in the temples, and yet, like Paul points out in 1 Corinthians, there's no God behind the idol, sure, but there, there sure is demonic power there. So when they did this, they were submitting themselves to worshipping the spiritual enemies of God. 
And the whole argument of the Nicolaitans falls in a big heap, right? Second, second reason it matters what we believe and teach. What we teach and believe leads to what we do. We've mentioned this already. Don't we see that here? These teachings were working out in the lives of the Christians there. They were worshipping idols. They were sexually immoral. They were, but because they were letting in false teachers and teaching. Church, there is a pattern here that we see so often. False teaching leads to false action, to worship of idols, to compromise with the idols of this world. This isn't just a back then thing. This is a now thing. Look at the prosperity gospel. God wants you to be saved so that you can make, he can make you wealthy and healthy and have a good, successful life in this world. What is that but idolatry? The worship of the gifts over the giver. And can you see that worship of the idol always undermines worship of the one true God and the peace and the joy of those believing it? You know, initially, prosperity teaching teaches you subtly to value what God can give you over God himself. Can we see that? To come to God for the things that he can give you, not for God himself. One of my favorite hip-hop musicians has this beautiful line, if you come to God for money, then God isn't your God, money is. He delivers it way cooler than I do. The result of this is that at the beginning we endlessly strive to be satisfied in things that can't satisfy us and we miss the ultimate source of joy and satisfaction God himself the result at the end is often that people find that God doesn't give them what they thought he would and so having come to him for things that he would not give they reject him because he would not give them to them Third reason why what we believe and teach matters. Jesus says to the church in Pergamum, in Revelation 2.16, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus will not sit by whilst his churches teach and believe lies. Jesus says he will do war against them. This, this is not the, the good moral teacher or the, the lovey-dovey Jesus who, who, who's just there to give you a pat on the back. Jesus does encourage us. Jesus does love us. And he loves us too much to let us sit under lies. Do you remember how Jesus identified himself in the reading this morning to these churches, to this church? Remember we said... Earlier in the series, every time Jesus opens one of these letters with an identification of himself, and they, they largely come from the first chapter, right? From the, the vision of the Son of Man in the first chapter. And, and they speak directly to that specific church. They're given intentionally. Do you notice how he re represents himself to the church in Pergamum? He who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, this is no end-of-the-world threat that Jesus is saying when he says, I'll come to you and war against them. 
Jesus is saying that when the church embraces lies and therefore lives falsely, he will judge them in this world. I mean, just look around at the churches of today. Not all of them. I I take such encouragement for the fact that there are healthy, gospel-declaring, missionally active churches popping up everywhere at the moment. This is such a positive thing. But there are a lot of other churches too. How many churches can you think of right now that are currently dying, that you would characterise their next 10 years as a, well, maybe one of them will survive? We're often ready to blame the culture for that, blame the move away from Christianity in our culture. But I would argue that often Jesus is judging those churches who have not been faithful to the truth that is in him. Certainly our culture is shifting away from Christian values, from favouring Christianity. That shouldn't be a surprise. We're a a lampstand for the kingdom of light in the midst of a kingdom of darkness. But, But what should disturb us is that so many of the churches have shifted away from Jesus as well. Church, so easy to throw rocks at other people, right? So easy to see the, the, the specks in their eyes and not to deal with the logs in our own. Let's, let's, let's look at ourselves here. What's going to be the difference between whether gospel church continues or gospel church dwindles and dies? We must cling to the truth that God has given to us and do so in a way that is not just conceptual in a way that is lived. If you, if you believe in the Father who gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. If you believe in the Son who came and who lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death but rose in victory, the only one who can do away with your sin and make you right with God. If you believe in him as Lord, as king over all of creation, soon to return and to bring to an end all other empires and only his will remain. If you believe in the spirit who comes, who empowers God's people to walk in faithfulness and to grow in Christ-likeness and to declare Christ's goodness to the world and who seals us for the day of Jesus' return, then that truth needs to flow out of our lives, doesn't it? That truth changes us. Church, we need to be passionate about the truth. Now, now that doesn't mean that we can't disagree on some things. You know, sometimes we get confused and we think that being passionate about the truth means I have to be right about everything. There are some ideas, some areas that the Bible is crystal clear on and those we must always stand firm on. These are truths which are at the heart of our faith. Issues which which Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 are first importance issues, right? And we must never bend on them. And there are issues that are not as clear. We're going to address a couple of them in this series in Revelation, right? Where, Where genuine believers disagree and do so with great respect and passion for the truth of Scripture. And there we can disagree Though those issues may still, still matter. 
Let me, I want to give you two questions today to think through as you try to apply this to yourself. First, do you invest in the truth and in teachers who will give you the truth? Notice that that's, that's two things, right? That's not my two questions, but the question's got two parts. Do you personally invest in the truth and in teachers who will give you the truth? Do you yourself dig deep into God's word? I was chatting to someone from this church just this last week who, who we had this conversation. He was like, the big problem is that Christians don't know the truth. And so they, they sit under a teacher who teaches them good truth and they go, yeah. And then they sit under a teacher who teaches them a lie and they go, yeah. This is a personal thing for each of us. Do we dig deep enough that you're able to recognise when you're being fed something other than the truth? We live in a time when you can get as little or as much teaching and study as you want. You know, books, sermons, podcasts, videos ranging from seven seconds to seven hours, all on every single topic you could ever imagine by a person from every single perspective that you could ever imagine. This last week, I ran into a, like a counselling course that's being run by a seminary in the States that they offer by distance. And I was like, wow, that sounds really interesting. Like, you can do almost anything. There are plenty of false teachers who will give five fairly good comments and five fairly good messages and sermons for every one that is outright false or is a bent truth even. teacher who teaches falsely, who teaches you to turn to idols, who rejects the truth that is in Jesus, even some of the time, should not be a teacher that you listen to any of the time. You know, the Nicolaitans, they may have been going, yeah, I mean, Jesus died and rose again, and, and by this our sins are overcome. And, you know, they, prob they almost certainly wouldn't have been rejecting that. They would have been teaching that, but they were also teaching you could go and worship the idols, and they were also teaching that how you used your body didn't really matter. Remember, it's okay to disagree on some things. This doesn't mean agreeing on everything, but it does mean that when teaching opposes the core things, that you oppose that teaching. I think, if I'm, if I'm really honest here, I think some of us are willing to listen to teachers who we go, wow, they do a doozy when they talk about that subject. That really seems a bit off the rails. Not okay. You know, they, they really seem to push prosperity just in that, you know, every, every one in five. But the other five are so good, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going with that person. And that's, that's not something we should do. Second question. Do you seek to apply the truth of what you are believing to your life. Here's a simple fact, which we've covered. Beliefs that you don't act on aren't beliefs, they're ideas. If you believe that Jesus is Saviour and Lord, if you believe that he is your greatest joy, but then all of your life is filled with the things of this world, yeah, all your life consists of is rubbishy TV, if he's your greatest love, but you never talk about him, then it's simple. You're not believing in him. You just say that you are. Now, take in mind, we all do that to some extent. 
The Christian life is a constant struggle against unbelief. It's not a perfect believing all of the time. There's only one person who ever did that. Starts with a J, ends in Esus. This is why we still need grace. We're all in the position of needing God to combat our unbelief. But if you're serious about believing it, that will be a battle that you're engaged in. The truth will be worth it. Seeking to live out what you believe in your words and in your actions. Each of these seven royal edicts, these divine oracles, each of them the messages, ends with a promise to the one who conquers. Remember, these are not just calls to personal improvement or to fun life advice. These are calls to conquer by the only definition that matters, the definition of heaven, that heaven gives to conquering. What does conquering look like? In the edict to per Pergamum, we learn that conquering looks like refusing to accept false teaching and so refusing to compromise with the idols of this world. Refusing to eat at the table of the idols. Refusing to eat at the table of the idol of personal success. Or the idol of laziness. Or the idol of any number of other things that are worshipped in our day. And to the one who conquers, the one who remains faithful and listens to the words of Jesus, he makes two promises. Jesus says, that he promises a better meal than the one that is offered by the idols. He says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. You know, this refers back to the, to the wilderness, right, again? Where God's people coming out of Egypt were provided for with this manna from heaven, heavenly food. The food that God gives. And in Revelation 19, John is going to hear about the marriage supper of the Lamb. We'll get to that later on, but let me just say, those who reject celebrating the idols get to go to a better feast. Those who reject false teaching and who embrace the truth that is in Jesus no matter the cost, they will be welcomed at a better feast. The eternal joy of being with our Saviour. Again, at its root, Jesus is promising himself to us here, right? The Lamb is the centre of the marriage supper of the Lamb. He also says, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Nice, we get a rock. This one's a little bit harder to understand, right? Um, my kids, uh, when they were little, in fact, I think, I think this is a thing that a lot of kids do. They would collect up rocks and give them to us, us as gifts, you know, on the walk back from the bus stop. And this one's special, and you're going to get that one. Is that what's going on here? No. I love those rocks, by the way. I still have all of them. But there are, there are quite a few known points of reference for what this means, what Jesus is saying here. Um, let, let me give you a few. Uh, Jesus, in, in Jewish judicial culture... Casting a white stone signified a not guilty vote. Um, casting a black one signified a, a guilty vote. Yeah, in, in, um, 
If you know your Bible, in, in Acts 26, verse 10, um, Paul says that he cast his vote against Christians before, they came, before he came to faith. He uh, cast his vote for them to die. Um, literally, the wording there is he cast his stone. Voting against them in doing so. There's also a, a couple of relevant customs in the Roman culture. One is that two people would sometimes break a stone in halves and, and write their names on the two halves, a white stone. And this would act as an assurance of hospitality. Tessera hospitalis, if you want the Roman word for it. An assurance of hospitality and welcome to the, to the other one. There's a similar tradition at the games that they would have, like the Olympics and, and things like this, where, where the winners of the game would be given a white stone inscribed with their name. And this would act as their ticket to the victory celebration. They'd show the stone so they could get in. In all likelihood, Jesus, Jesus says this knowing that it's got a whole bunch of points of reference and in knowing that they're all relevant. Jesus is saying that the one who conquers has the only not guilty vote that matters. The one cast by the judge himself, Jesus the one who conquers has the promise of the hospitality of Jesus. He will let them into the new heavens and new earth. When he returns, they will eat at his table with him. And because they have overcome, because they have the victory that is in Jesus, they will be welcome at the victory celebration at the marriage supper of the Lamb when all creation celebrates Jesus. Let me chuck one last thing in here. We never want to assume that everyone in the room is someone who has already come to know the truth that is in Jesus. You might have a life that is devoted to the things of this world. And you know, you might have thought them pretty good. And this morning you might have heard that there's a better feast coming. There is a better day coming. There is one who saves there is one truth alone that must be believed in. The truth that is in Jesus. I just want to finish today with that invitation. You might have been coming to church your whole life. This might be your first time. Who knows? But if you put your trust in Jesus, if you turn from sin and trust in him, he will save you. He will lead you to be one of those who conquer, who are welcomed in when he comes back and who live eternally in joy with him. If that's you, I invite you, don't, don't let it sit. Come and have a chat to me afterwards or, or chat to someone you came with or someone who's a Christian. And we'll be so happy to talk you through that and pray with you through that. But with that, would you, would you all pray with me? Jesus, you are the one who holds the sharp two-edged sword. Indeed, it comes from your mouth. Would you lead us to be a people who are passionate about your words, Jesus, and passionate about the truth that is in you? Would you lead us to be a people who live out the truth, 
who are changed by it, who believe and trust. Would you lead us to be a people who have the discernment to see when we're being lied to and to run to you? Lord, I pray for anyone who has not believed the truth that is in you, that today would be the day. That you would show them your goodness by the power of your spirit in their heart. That they would trust in your cross to take the punishment for their sin. And trust in your empty tomb to mean life for them. Thank you, Lord, that you have brought life to all who believe in Jesus. And thank you that you will welcome us in. We trust you, Lord. Lead us to trust you more. In Jesus' name. Amen.